Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout-out to the Reformed members of Back to Ashes. Lisa Radford, Ashley Miles, Interscare Wifey, Tina Mead, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Gwen Haley, Mana Ash, Normie D.W., Chrissy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, Patty's Niece, and Samantha Place. The rest of the Back to Ashes membership family can be seen right here on your screen. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes or buy me a coffee as a thank you, all that information can be found below. Now, with all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in to get warm and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Middle of Nowhere Stories. Right after this intro, an ad will play. I'll read the first story, an ad will play. And after that, there will be no more ads within this video. So, I went on a backpacking trip in some youth program in the North Cascades near Seattle. One of us got hurt by a falling rock on our way to base camp, so I had to help carry him back to the trailhead while accompanied by one of the leaders. On our way back, we came across another hiker, a young woman. We talked as we were all sort of taking a rest, and she said she was going to summit one of the peaks later on the trail. Thing is... The trailhead to peak was about eight hours one way. She had a light day pack. Next day, back at base camp, helicopters swarmed and men were dropping. It was like a movie. I was taken aback. Little did we all know, it was a huge search and rescue team looking for the same woman I had interacted with just about 16 hours before. Samantha Sayers. That's her name. For three days, every night, all I could hear was the distant calls of men and women yelling, Samantha, all echoing off the basin walls in an endless call for this person. I remember hearing it was a supposed suicide, that she was a seasoned hiker, yet she didn't pack nearly enough for this excursion. It didn't make any sense. Perhaps she wanted to last to get just far enough, then stay. That would be her final moment, atop a peak, doing something she absolutely loved. I remember after I flew home, I would never stop thinking of her, and I never have stopped. I still look up her name, just to find that she has never been found, that she is just without her family, but that she has seemingly disappeared into nothing. It really bothers me, thinking of what those hours right after we spoke were like for her. What she last saw, what she last thought, what she last did. But it doesn't seem to matter because whatever any of those answers are, they will quite possibly never be found, just like she never was. I cannot put into words how much this haunts me still to this day. I used to work for a pest control company and did most of the termite pre-treatment work. This typically involved working super late into the night to get the work done before concrete crews got started in the morning. I was on a job site for a big custom house way out in the desert. The entire job site was surrounded with high barbed wire fence with a drive-through gate. 
I was down in a dugout area for a basement with my truck, working away, when I heard the fence line rattle. I was wearing a hat, mounted flashlight, so I looked up and scanned the fence line, thinking a coyote was walking along it. Instead, I found a woman trying to climb the fence, but unable to get past the barbed wire portion. I have heard people say the phrase crazed look before, but never understood the statement before that moment. As soon as my flashlight hit her, she dropped back to the ground and just stood there looking at me. A lot of the night is weirdly lost in my memory, either because it was over a decade ago or because fear made me foggy. But I do remember a few things very vividly. Her eyes were as wide as they could get, like almost popping out of their sockets. She kept muttering to herself, but I couldn't hear what she was saying. And when she wasn't talking... She kept kind of smiling like her face muscles were trying to pull her mouth open. All she was wearing was a super dirty and torn up long shirt or dress and she had no shoes on. She kept walking back and forth along the fence line and I was pretty sure she was looking for a way in. I always locked myself in construction sites when working and thankfully I did that night too. It felt like it took me forever to get my equipment stowed and the pistol out of my truck cab, all while trying to keep an eye on the woman. She just kept staring at me, muttering and pacing the fence line. I was able to reach the police, but it took almost 40 minutes for a sheriff's officer to get out to me. As soon as his car started making noise on the dirt road, leading to the work site, the lady ran off into the desert. I'm sure she was drugged out of her head or something, but I still don't know how she got that far out of town in the dark with no shoes on. I was a good 30 minutes or more out of town driving, much less on foot. I still have an occasional nightmare about it, and it always ends up with me forgetting I left the gate open and panic running back to the truck. I live on a ranch off of a quiet dirt road. Our distant neighbors, nearest house is about one mile away as the crow flies, have had issues with people stealing things out of their outbuildings and storage sheds in the area. It was also late in the year, so it was starting to get dark at around 6 p.m. So as a result, every time I would see headlights go down our road, I would watch to make sure they weren't stopping on the property. One evening, I see a vehicle going very slowly down the road and come to a stop at the end of our driveway, about 120 yards from our front porch. The vehicle was parked in front of a 60s pickup I had parked, so I think whoever it is might be looking to steal it or just looking over the property. Whatever the case, I decide to put on a black coat and grab my rifle to go investigate. It's dark out, so I stay out of the headlights of the vehicle so I can get close. I can tell it is a white van, but I don't see anything else distinguishing about the van. When I'm about 50 yards away, the van backs up and turns into our driveway. I freeze as the headlights wash across me standing in the middle of my driveway, and I see the reflective FedEx logos on the side of the van. Needless to say, the FedEx driver probably shit his pants as he suddenly sees a dark figure standing in the middle of a field in the dark, holding a rifle. 
Surprisingly, after I try to give a friendly wave and smile, he continues up the driveway to the house, and I get to explain the situation and we both have a laugh. So, that's how I got to be the creepy guy to some FedEx delivery driver out in the middle of nowhere. Although it's not really work, I do go hunting kind of north in Canada. And the thing is, where I hunt for deer, there are plenty of wolves, bears, and the sorts. So I stay in a cabin up there. You aren't always on your toes, but you want to bring a rifle with you to go anywhere, even if you don't plan on shooting anything. So, it's like 5 a.m., and I'm on the four-wheeler in freezing weather to get to my tree stand before dawn hits, and I swear to God, I keep hearing crashing through the bushes. I dismiss it for probably being ice cracking the branches from last night's snow, but creepy nonetheless. As I reach my stand, I climb up and settle for the morning. I get a pretty nice view of a field that was cleared out, and there is an old burned-out cottage on the opposite end of the clearing. As the sun rises behind my stand, the morning is very still, just the occasional branch falling down through the forest. Day really passed without any ammo being spent, and I get out of my tree stand and decide maybe I should go look at the burned-down cabin. I've never bothered checking it. And looking at it all day got me curious enough to go check it out. There wasn't a clear trail, obviously, so I'd have to go to it on foot. I unloaded my rifle and went for a long walk. Around a good ten minutes later, I started to get close and could see some old farm equipment, which made sense. A field in the middle of the forest was probably cleared so a farmer could do what he wants with it. I come close to the doorway only really able to hear the crunch of snow beneath my feet. The doorway managed to survive whatever happened there and slid down the snow in through the doorway, careful not to touch anything, and I feel crunch under my boots that's definitely not snow. It's the skull of a bull. I look up from the snow and there is more of them. Skulls and legs, a ridiculous amount but the part that alarmed me is that I could see a tint of red in the snow underneath one that was still covered in skin. So I said that and bolted, back across the field and didn't look back. Why was someone collecting that shit in the middle of the forest? I don't have a clue and don't want to even think about it. Next year I move my stand and I never want to go back there. Weird shit happens in the forest. I remember a time when I was almost abducted when I was a kid. At least I thought I was. I lived at my grandmother's house out in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Our neighbors lived closer to the main county road, and my grandmother's house was on the back of a five-acre lot. Across the main street was an army depot, nothing but woods and yellow daffodils. My parents were at work, and my grandparents were in the house watching the Golden Girls. My father had bought me a bike as a birthday gift. I had just turned nine, so I was riding my bike up our long driveway. Our neighbor to the left, a really old elderly woman, 
had no one to visit her or to talk to her, so I often played at her house and helped her with anything she asked me to do. That day, I wanted to show her my new bike. She was sitting on her porch when I visited her. She had no errands or chores for me, so I talked to her for about 15 minutes and showed her my bike. Then I returned to my own driveway. I had been riding back and forth for about 15 minutes, listening to music on my MP3 player, when I had this sudden, nauseating pain in my gut. I looked around, only to find a car passing by. I recognized it as my elderly neighbor's car and waved to her. She stopped long enough to talk to me. As she pulled into our driveway, just far enough that the tail end of her car wasn't in the street, a white van marked with some electric company's name and a ladder on the roof passed by. In our area, there was only one electric company. The one on the truck was not ours, so I found it strange but quickly dismissed it to talk to our neighbor. A good ten minutes passed when I noticed the van was driving by once more and going in the direction it came from. Maybe the man was lost, I thought, and kept talking to my neighbor. She gave me a bag of her garden tomatoes and cucumbers for my grandmother before telling me to run on home. I watched her as she drove away. Then that sudden pain returned. I had forgotten all about it. I looked up to see the white van was driving in my direction, going much faster than it had been. Something inside me screamed to run, to do something. Whatever it was, I had to get away and do it fast. I dropped the bags in my hand and ran across the small pasture to my elderly neighbor's house. She was no longer on the porch, but her house was much closer than my grandmother's was. As I hopped over the neighbor's fence, the van sped up as it cut into the neighbor's driveway. I made a quick decision to run up the back steps instead of running around the front of the house. My neighbor had a long wraparound porch and her driveway was small. If he had intentions on kidnapping me, it would have been too easy for him to catch me trying to run around the front of the house. I was in tears as my neighbor locked her doors and called the police. She'd seen everything and called my grandfather first. It would have taken way too long for the police to arrive. My neighbor put me in her room and locked the door behind herself. Moments later, I heard banging on the front door. As terrified as I was, I looked out of the bedroom window to find a tall and lean man standing on the front porch. He looked like he might be in his mid to late 20s. Dark hair, blue jumpsuit like Michael Myers. He had aviator sunglasses on, and I could see he had a dark beard. He banged on the door once more, then began walking around the house. He was looking in the windows when my grandfather arrived. That very moment he saw my grandfather, the man ran back to his van and sped off. I'm 25 now, and thankfully, I never saw that van again. When I was 17, 18-ish, I was driving home from a friend's house after a movie marathon. It was around 1 a.m. when I left, and a decent drive. Not quite halfway, my gas light came on. I had a few creepy catcall experiences at gas stations and was a little paranoid stopping that late in the middle of nowhere 
as a 110-pound teenage girl. In the end, I think if I wasn't so cautious, I would have been kidnapped or killed. The first gas station I came across was well lit and in a pretty open space. I drove up to the pump and looked around my car mirrors before getting out. As I was starting to pump gas, this normal-looking guy comes out of the gas station shop and starts smoking a cigarette. The pump kept clicking off and not working, so I started messing with it trying to get it to pump. This guy starts watching me, laughing. I assumed he was just laughing to himself watching a teenage girl trying to pump gas. After maybe getting a fourth of a gallon, I gave up and moved to a new pump. After this point, if I didn't do absolutely everything I did, I would have been screwed. When I got back into my car, I locked my doors just to drive to the other pump. I checked all my mirrors before getting out or shutting my car off again. It's an old 90s Beetle that didn't always start up right away. That's when I saw the guy walking up to my car. He was smiling, walking up to the driver's side window. Not wanting him next to me, I rode down the passenger window. He paused for a moment, then smiled to himself and walked to the passenger window. He stuck his head all the way inside my car to talk to me. Hey, I know this seems really weird, but I promise I'm not a creep or anything. My car broke down. He pointed to a red SUV. And I need a ride home. It's just a half a mile up the road. Uh, I'm sorry, but I, I don't know you. Oh, no, I totally get it. I thought it was pretty weird as I was walking up here. But it's only a half a mile up the road. I'm totally stranded. I wish I could help you, but I really don't know you. Yeah, yeah, I got you. If you had a truck or something, I'd offer to ride in the back. He looks expectantly. Uh, sorry, but no. All of a sudden, he looked pissed. He yanked at my door, but I had locked it before. Then he reached for my inside door handle through the window. My car was still running, and I slammed it into first and peeled out as he opened the door. The car taking off slammed it shut, and I sped off. I called the police after I got away. They looked at the gas station cameras, and right after I left, he got into his red SUV and drove off. If I hadn't locked my doors the second time, I would have been... If I let him come to the driver's side window, he could have grabbed me. If I had shut my car off, I wouldn't have been able to drive off in time. If I didn't double-check my mirrors, I would have been outside my car when he came up to me. This happened a while ago, so my recollection of this isn't going to be word for word, but here it goes. I'm a teenager. Me and my mother live alone. We live basically in the middle of nowhere. The nearest town is less than an hour away, and the only things we have near us are a gas station and a bar. I know everyone who lives near me, and we rarely ever see new people in our neck of the woods. So, just seeing someone who isn't familiar is suspicious enough, so this was pretty creepy. A couple of years ago, it was the middle of the night, 
Me and my mother are night owls. We like to be awake from that midnight to 6 a.m. time period that most people prefer to sleep during. My mother was watching TV in the living room, and I was using the computer in the kitchen. The kitchen and the living room are basically connected, so I wasn't too far away from her, only a few feet. The front door leads right into the living room. It's a door with nine windows, so it's pretty easy to see in. My mom looked towards the door, and she saw somebody staring at her through the window, and he was wearing a hood that obscured almost all of his face. My mom jumped, and she of course walked to the door and asked him what the hell he was doing. According to my mother, he looked pretty young, so she could barely see his face, so who knows how old he really was. The man said something along the lines of, Uh, could you help me with my car, please? in a tone I could only describe as miserable and off-putting. Even though it was dark out, there should have been enough light for her to see a car. There wasn't a car. The man was also holding his hands in his pockets pretty tight. My mother said no and apologized. This caused him to grip whatever was in his pocket tighter, so tight it caused his arm to tremble. He stayed for a few more minutes, and then he had swiftly disappeared. Throughout the night, maybe one or two hours later, we thought we heard slight weeping, but we didn't see anyone at any of our doors and windows. I may be making assumptions here, but I can only assume it was a weapon he was holding in his pockets. This was a creepy-ass experience, and it's safe to say he was going to lure my mother out of the house and do something sinister to her. A year ago, there was a very small metal plate jammed between the front door strike plate and the piece that goes inside of it. I'm not sure what it's called. We have zero idea where this metal plate came from. But the metal plate stopped our doors from locking, so I'm assuming it was put there so that somebody could get in later. These things are probably not related, but it made me think about him because this was deliberately placed there by somebody, and we are not sure why. Creepy guy staring at my mother through the door after midnight in the middle of nowhere. We hope we never, ever see you again. Alaska is the perfect place to go if you want to get away from the rest of the world. As America's least densely populated state, you have plenty of breathing room for any kind of authority or prying eyes that may want to know what you're up to. For this reason, my home state is very attractive to all sorts of weird and unsavory groups. I've stumbled across Scientology centers at the end of a dirt back road with nothing else for miles around, heard stories from doomsday preppers who claim to have bunkers made out of shipping containers in the sides of mountains, and met people who have come out of religious cults in the interior that wanted to keep their followers away from any contact with the outside world. All of this and more you can find in Alaska. I was born and raised in Anchorage, the only big city in the state. Growing up, we had about 250,000 people in a city, it takes about 30 minutes tops to drive across, so that gives you an idea for what we up north consider a big city. The only other real city in the state is Fairbanks. These two cities are connected by 360 miles of two-lane highway. 
It's a seven-hour drive one way to get between them through one of the most beautiful landscapes on the planet. Mountains rise up on either side of you between Anchorage and Denali National Park before you drive through these colossal canyons carved out of the rock over tens of thousands of years by melting glaciers and rivers. Past Denali is another three hours of driving through a vast, flat interior plain with mountains in the distance. I say all of this to help you understand just how desolate it feels in the Alaska, even on the highway. After you get out of Anchorage or Fairbanks, there is nothing but wilderness as far as the eye can see, save for the occasional small down with a max population of about 1,000 people on a good day. Ten years back, it was even less. Alaskan girls are built tough. We change tires, hunt, fish, camp, and generally have a great appreciation for the great outdoors that women in the lower 48 don't really have if they're near a city. The joke is that Anchorage is the biggest rural city in the country. All this brings context to the following story. In high school, things were different, or at least they felt different. I was a young and stupid woman who thought I could conquer anything due to the aforementioned built-tough attitude I was raised with. Senior year of high school, I decided to treat myself to a camping trip into the mountains up past Talkeetna. Nothing fancy, just an overnight or two in the most beautiful state at the most beautiful time of the year, mid-June. Going up north in pink summer here has a weird feeling to it. The sun never really sets. If you've ever seen the movie Midsummer, that's what it's like. It gets to about dusk and that's it. It's still bright and sunny out the whole night through. Shout out to the leaders in the far north of Scandinavia and Greenland. The false sense of security I had thinking that the midnight sunlight would mean safety probably nearly got me killed, or worse. My second mistake was not telling anyone where I was going. I just packed up for my trip, stopped at Subway for lunch, and headed out into the great beyond. The drive was fine. A solid two and a half hours of driving north along the highway took up most of the afternoon as I jammed out to the greatest hits from the radio on Cool 97.3. After you get through the Matsu Valley, you get into the mountains again. Tall spruce and evergreen trees line the road on both sides, with the occasional empty space where there has been some clear-cut logging. All of this gives you a sense that while you're out in the wilderness, you are still connected to civilization in some way. This led me to my biggest mistake, not staying at a state park campground. I was in high school with only a part-time job and didn't want to pay the $15 overnight camp fee and was too scared to risk the fine, so I found a spot that looked good and pulled off the road. The map I got from my dad said there was an old mining site up a nearby mountain, so I decided that would be the best spot to head to for an overnight. My logic must have been that it was badass to spend a night in a mining ghost town or something. Pulled off the road, packed out my backpack, put on some bug spray, grabbed my map and compass and started off into the woods. Now, this hadn't been the first time I had done this. I've been on wilderness backpacking trips on my own with my dad throughout my childhood. 
I knew my orientation skills and had taken some wilderness survival courses at camp. I wasn't just some dumb blonde wandering off into the woods with no idea of where I was. Or so I thought. A solid 45-minute hike up into the hills, and I finally made it to where the old mining camp was supposed to be. There was nothing there. Just an old concrete foundation with some holes in it and nothing else. I was very disappointed, but unsurprised at the outcome. I set up camp off in the woods and set to building a fire for dinner on the concrete slab. Here you're supposed to set up cooking a ways off from your camp just in case bears are nosy. Last thing you want is a 1,300-pound grizzly poking his nose in your tent wondering why you smell like Campbell's soup and s'mores. By this time it was getting late, around 10 p.m., but the sun was still high in the sky. And by the time dinner was over, it was nearly 11. I was starving, so I dug in. About an hour later, it was about as dark as it was going to get, so I hunkered down in my tent for the night, confident that the overgrowth was private enough for whatever animals might come out around then. I woke to voices in the distance and slow-moving crashing through the underbrush. My first thought was, Hunters. My dad and I had ran into a few on some campouts, so it wasn't uncommon. I relaxed and figured they would just pass through without incident and close my eyes again. That's when they found my fire pit. A man's voice cried out into the brightish forest. Who the f*** is camping on our property? I froze. I knew I had f***ed up and was getting up, grabbing my purse and putting on my shoes so I could go apologize before I heard the man again. When we find you, you're f***ing dead. You're on private militia property and trespassers get shot. That's when the whole situation changed. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't just pack up my tent and shit with some armed guy lurking around. I carefully put my shoes on, put my keys in my purse, and slunk away into the underbrush as quietly as I could. My thought was to slip away, wait until they got bored and left, then go back, pack up, and leave. I spent 20 minutes hunkered behind a log in the woods barely in earshot before I heard a second voice calling for the others. They found my tent and were tearing it apart, going through all of my stuff. I heard one shout out, bed still warm, and trespassers a check, she left her underwear. The first man shouted out, okay, fan out and find her. Thinks she can trespass. Well, there's gonna be hell to pay. At that point, I wasn't concerned that I had left my spare change of underwear in my bag or that those creeps had found it. I needed to get the hell out of there. Quietly, I made my way down the mountain for a good 30 minutes, tiptoeing and taking care not to step on twigs or make a ruckus. After the rustling and shouting of the men had faded quite a bit, I said f*** it and booked it as fast as I could in the midnight sun down the hills. I tripped and fell and got scraped up more times than I'd care to remember. Finally, I made it back to the road, but much to my horror, there was no car. I knew I had come out, up, or down the road from where I had been. I couldn't quite remember where I was at the time, but picked a direction and started walking. I rounded a corner on the road and saw my car, and the two men standing beside it. 
They were armed and dressed in surplus military gear. I hid in the brush on the side of the road and watched. A while later, several more men appeared from the trail I had taken. They dumped all my stuff next to my car, hopped back onto their ATVs and drove off. I went up to my car, careful not to be seen, and found a note on my dashboard. It read something like, If we ever catch you on our property again, we won't hesitate to use force. Consider this a warning. I went back to start loading stuff into my car and noticed what they had done. They'd cut up or destroyed all of my gear, probably as punishment for trespassing. Honestly, I'm thankful they did that because I'm grateful I didn't get shot. Ever since then, I had taken great care to camp only in designated camping areas. To the weird Alaskan militia group, I know you weren't actually going to kill me, but nevertheless, I hope I never run into you again. I used to ride a motorcycle as a sole method of transportation when I was studying, and I used to work on hotel cocktail bars during the summer holidays. Six years ago, I was working at a historic, stereotypically grand hotel in a very rural area of the UK. I worked a long afternoon and evening into the night. Finished cleaning up the bar at around 2 a.m. and walked through the underbelly of the hotel to retrieve my motorcycle and make the journey home. I can still clearly remember the feeling of the crisp night air and the absolute pitch-black silence of the countryside after the hot and seemingly never-ending nights of serving drinks to dinner-goers and party-goers. It was always sort of intensely relaxing, now that being an adult meant not being scared of the dark or being outside on a motorcycle in the middle of early nowhere at 2 a.m., Riding through the local town took me a few minutes before I left to follow the dark country roads home. At this point, I rode a Honda 125cc around 11 horsepower. Basic and old, but clean. It did the job, regardless of its quirks such as the dim headlight, which would dim and flicker even more when coming to a stop. I was riding along these pitch black roads with fields and woods surrounding me very much alone for 20 minutes. Then I saw a brief blast of bright blue headlights in my mirrors coming from behind. Moments later, dazzling headlights arrived behind me in seconds. Almost immediately, a large Range Rover pulls out to overtake me, blasting past barely inches away from me. I respond with a long blast on my horn. Big mistake. The Range Rover pulls out in front of me and slams on their anchors, and what seemed like an attempt to have me lose control under sudden braking or rear-ending the range. Bikes can, even when they're old and rely on drum brakes, stop pretty quickly, so I didn't rear-end the maniac in front of me. I came to a controlled stop. I see the doors of the range crack open, and a figure begin to step out. I went for it, using all 11 horsepower of the little Honda's power, pulling an overtake. However, in those moments, this anger-crazed maniac had shut his door and stepped onto the accelerator, causing us to be level and accelerating together when I reached his car. 
He then started to run me off the road, pulling to the right, wedging me further over towards the ditch at the side of the road. This is where I ended up, struggling to control the bike on the wet, dew-heavy grass around the side of the road, trying to stop the 140-kilogram bicycle dropping into the ditch. I struggled to regain balance, but managed to pull the bike back onto the road. At this point, I noticed the guy had got back out of the Range Rover and walked around to the back, opened it, and was reaching inside. I had turned the bike to face the other side of the road, ready to turn either way and make an escape from this escalating situation. Just as I looked to turn, I took one more look over at him to see him pulling a large, long object out of the back of the range. I just went for it, taking another glance over my shoulder after 200 meters to see he'd begun to continue driving up the road away from where I'd run off the road. I slowed down to see what he'd do next after driving away from me. He reached the top of the road and pulled over to the left, waiting for me, the light reflecting on the road. It was eerie. My heart was beating so fast, yet I felt like time had stopped. I just carried on into the opposite direction to find an alternative route home in the pitch black. Just before doing this, I checked my phone for signal to see that I had no mobile coverage at all. To this day, I'm still really cautious about taking roads at night. My family and I were driving from Ohio to Wyoming one holiday season to visit family about 10 years ago. Due to storms farther north, we traveled straight west instead of northwest at first and split the trip at Omaha, staying the night before heading up through Nebraska into South Dakota. Once we were far enough north, we turned west onto I-90. At that point, it had been over an hour since we saw anywhere that might have had a public restroom, and we were on state route, so no rest areas. Those of you who traveled with a young kid know that's close to their bladder and boredom's limit. And our daughter was begging to stop somewhere to pee. South Dakota was also deserted or even worse as we headed west. Finally, we reached a desperately needed rest stop as my at-the-time five-year-old and I both needed to pee by then. Just as we pulled in, the truck that had been following us for a while pulled in too. I didn't think too much of that at first, until I started to open my door. My head was turned to the right, where the truck was parked a couple spots over. My eyes met the driver's, and I just shivered. He was a skinny white kid, straggly, gray-brown beard and dark eyes. I could see that he was wearing a dingy, dirty blue plaid shirt. He got out of his 90s brown and cream truck and started rummaging in the bed. I told my husband I didn't want to go into the rest stop alone because of the guy and the weird feeling I was getting from him. He thought I was being a little silly, but agreed to come in with us. At that point, the next stop was Wall, South Dakota, about 100 miles away, according to the huge billboards we'd passed advertising it. He figured he'd better empty his bladder even though he didn't particularly feel the need. I grabbed our daughter and we headed inside, followed by the guy who'd finished rummaging at his truck but wasn't carrying anything when I glanced back. 
My daughter and I did our business in the women's restroom and headed back out to the lobby. As I expected, my husband was already out there since he didn't have a small human to chaperone. The old guy was also in the tiny lobby area. He was just standing there staring at my husband. My husband rushed us back to our car. As we were buckling in, he locked the doors. Then he told me that the guy hadn't even gone into the restroom and was just standing in the lobby the entire time. He agreed with me that we might have just had a close call, and he was glad it hadn't just been me and our daughter there. However, that's not the end of the story. Remember how I mentioned Wall and that it was 100 miles away? Well, that was 100 miles of pretty empty landscape but a decent number of turnoffs from the interstate. We didn't see the truck following us and thought the whole episode was behind us. Except when we stopped in Wall to grab lunch and some road snacks. Plus, look around this homey but fun little tourist trap in the middle of nowhere. We saw the guy in the store, not even 20 feet from us. Same face, beard, dirty plaid shirt. Thankfully, we had already eaten, so since he was staring at us again, we quickly paid for our snacks and trinkets and got the hell out of there. Thankfully, we didn't see him again. But I was seriously creeped out until we reached our relatives in Wyoming safely with no other sight of that truck. Okay, to start, I'm a 23-year-old, at the time of my story I was 19, 5'5", fat girl from England. My weight and country come into play later. So, I used to walk my dog at night until this experience. Not the kind of dark where you can't see anything, but the kind where you can make out a fair bit, but not perfectly. Disclaimer of what the area is like. Middle of nowhere village. Everyone knows each other. Strangers or visitors are always spotted. A fair few of my neighbors walk late, and the neighbor I meet most, who always goes out then, is a six foot three, heavily tattooed, 46 year old man with two very unfriendly big dogs one Mastiff and one German Shepherd. We were great friends, and still are, and the only other dog he wouldn't attack was mine. So, I had no worries at that late hour because he was normally just a shout away. This night, I bumped into him just ending his walk, which had happened a couple times, so no big worries. I'm around half an hour into my 45-minute walk in the woods, earphones in with music playing and just checking my phone for what song to play next. I notice my dog is looking up as if he can see something. I assume it's another neighbor fox or deer. My dog doesn't chase anything, so it was normal he didn't run after any animal. I looked up calmly to see a strange man standing around 20 to 25 feet away from me, holding a rifle. No dog. It wasn't hunting season. And this is England, so getting a gun, unless you're a farmer, let alone a rifle, it's very difficult. He looked shocked but angry to see me there. At this point, I remember my head torch, and he turns to look at me. He angles himself to face me, and at this point, I knew I couldn't turn around or run since I'm very out of shape, more so than so I carry on walking. 
As we go past, my dog gives him a wide berth, which is unusual since he's so friendly and loves literally everyone and everything. When I was level with him, he just shuffled and said, Evening. I responded with the usual good evening and sped walk out of there. Looking back over my shoulder as I was about to leave the woods, I saw he hadn't moved, just stood there looking at me. I never walked alone at night again. This freaked me out so much because it's never happened again, and any hunting near me has to be done in a certain area at a certain time of year. He could have been hunting, but I'm sure I would have heard a gun go off at some point since sound travels and I can hear bird scarriers in other fields through my headphones. For context, I didn't walk with a neighbor a lot because he was inconsistent with times due to work and it had been safe with no issues for three years before all of this even happened. So, we live in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. Closest neighbors about 900 meters away by road, and 600 if you cut through their forest. We have lived here for quite some time and never had really that much of a problem with the neighbors. My mom has four large dogs, two being Alaskan Malamutes, one Husky Malamute mix, and one German Shepherd Malamute mix. They bark at things they see. If they see hunters or deer or moose on the far side of the field next to our house or whether it's a car driving or people walking up and down our road, they bark really loudly. And when I say our road, I mean our road. It's about 200 meters long and led only to our house and away from it. No other properties. One of the dogs is inside at night. Two are inside a large fence area and one is outside the fenced area on a chain leash connecting to her doghouse. They are really the sweetest dogs and couldn't hurt a fly. Well, maybe a fly, but never people. They do have a large problem with running away, though, meaning that if they somehow get loose, they stay loose for a few hours, roaming other people's properties unless you catch or lure them back within seconds. They come back on their own after approximately three to five hours, but we try to find them and catch them before they cause any harm on others. Well, one night, and I mean middle of the night, around 3 a.m., my dad gets a phone call from a blocked number. Being all groggy from literally just waking up, he answers it. The male voice on the other end of it aggressively says, Make your f dog shut the f up before I call the f police and animal control. My dad just apologizes and the other person hangs up. My dad got up worried and goes to check on the dogs. I know you're getting ahead of yourselves, but our dogs are still there. They all seem to have just woken up when my dad walked outside, and now he is a bit annoyed for being threatened for no reason at all. Also, if they had been barking, the police couldn't find him, and animal control couldn't either, considering the dogs are healthy. A month passes, and we all forget the strange call. The next occurrence may not even be by the same person, but I wouldn't be surprised. My parents wake up make some coffee, and go out for a cigarette, as they normally do. They sat there for a moment until they saw one of our dogs laying on the porch next to them. 
The dog looked at them with guilt in his eyes, and soon our other dog came running from behind the house, wagging its tail happily. The third dog, on the chain leash, started howling at this, and my parents went to check if they had just closed the door properly. The fenced area was quite large, as I said, built with thick metal net supported by poles. It was about two and a half meters tall, so I can't even reach the top. The door was a frame with the same metal net, but strengthened with a piece of tin panel at the bottom because the dogs had once wiggled through it. But the problem wasn't the door. They hadn't dug their way out or magically jumped away, no. In the back of the fence, there was a large hole cut with metal cutters or something else. Around the hole, there were muddy footprints, and my parents called the police after taking the dogs in. Somehow, the police didn't see the problem and said that it was likely the dogs that had chewed their way out. These words literally came from his mouth. Our third dog was probably not let out because she has the meanest bark you'll ever hear. She literally will roll over if you go closer, but the culprits didn't know that, so they went from the back. Well, my dad bought a hunting camera, and gladly, no one came there again. Maybe the scariest part of them being let out of the pen is that it was hunting season, and a hunter could have shot the dogs during the night. I say specifically hunters because here only hunters are permitted to own firearms. Once we found a plastic bag with raw meat outside our dog pen. Obviously, it was thrown out immediately, but it still creeps me out. And the whole ordeal is just so weird. Maybe it was a messed up prank and the consequences were unclear to those doing it. Maybe they tried to catch the dogs and take them, but they were too fast and strong. Maybe they wanted to send a message like some sort of a maniac, but this certainly made us feel on edge for a long while. This happened a few years ago in a campground in Florida. I visit this campground every two years, and I was very familiar with it at this point. This is the first time anything like this has happened. This campground is also in a national park, so there is a thick forest surrounding it, pretty much in the middle of nowhere, but still in the park. My cousin and I left a cabin and went on a walk down the road and through the woods at sunset. About a mile or so in, we go off the road into an area that I am familiar with. It has a roundabout type road with trim weeds in the middle. The roundabout has two roads to it, the one we entered from and another that leads to an area I'm not very familiar with. To the left of the roundabout was a large cabin my family frequently rented out for events. To the right was a picnic area gazebo that overlooked a pond. We were completely surrounded by dense woods. My cousin and I go to the gazebo to talk and watch the gorgeous sunset over the pond. We found the fuse box for the gazebo and turned it on for a little extra light while we talked. After a while, darkness started to catch up with us and we realized the area looked like a perfect spot for a horror film to take place. So we decided to turn off the lights and head back to the cabin. Being in the middle of nowhere in a national park, there were no light poles or street lights. It was pitch black, save for our phone flashlights. 
Once we turned off the gazebo, we noticed something that shouldn't be there. In the middle of the roundabout area was a green light or orb suspended about five feet in the air. It was about the size of a grapefruit, and it didn't move. There was nothing in the roundabout that would produce light, and the light didn't illuminate anything or look like it was attached to anything. My cousin and I are a little freaked out by this and make our way towards the road, avoiding the orb as much as we can. A short ways down the road, we realized we had no idea where we were and that we went down the wrong road. We return to the roundabout area, and the orb is still there. Unfortunately, the road we needed to get to was on the other side, meaning we would have to pass the light about six foot away to get to it. We try our best to walk by, and with a closer look, I still couldn't see the source of it. We eventually returned to the cabin, and all was good. That was my first and only time being in that area at night. I didn't take photos because I was pretty scared of being in pitch black woods in the middle of nowhere at night and was using my phone's flashlight to make sure I didn't accidentally step on a snake. That night I googled for any paranormal activity in that campground and only came up with random articles saying, the devil appears in, insert campground name here, type of stories. Nothing really explains the orb though. I asked my friend about it, and he said it was probably an animal spirit, but it was very motionless. It was just suspended in the air, just glowing, the brightest green I have ever seen. Me, my friend, and my girlfriend were staying on top of a small mountain in a yurt in North Carolina for three days. The yurt was one large cylindrical room with two futons and a kitchen table. Two doors to enter the yurt off of the porch that circled one half of the building. The first door was to the north and the second door to the west. The second door was closer to the futons and the main entrance was on the north from the futons. First night, we made dinner and fell asleep after our nine-hour drive. Nothing out of the ordinary happened. We went out hiking in the morning and had a full day, lots of fun. We came back and I made dinner and we passed out. That night, my girlfriend woke up and had an extreme and sudden notion that the doors needed to be locked. She got up and locked the door and went back to sleep. She claimed she woke up again in a sleepy daze to what looked like a black silhouette sitting at the dinner table next to the bed. She shook it off as a dream or a sleepy hallucination and went back to sleep. We went out again on our third day hiking and returned at sundown. I wanted to take a time lapse of the sun retreating over the mountains, so I ran up to the top of our little hill to set up a time lapse aimed down at the yurt. As I was doing this, my girlfriend and other friend were exploring a trail that led back into the woods of the mountain. We all went back in and I left the camera shooting. I made dinner and we ate. Afterwards, I went up to the top of the hill alone to retrieve my camera. This is where things started for me. 
I took a piss by my tripod, and as soon as I finished, this wave of what I can only explain as energy enveloped me. Like a wall of fog or something. In my mind, I kept having this image of a strange white figure that could have been like a humanoid tree kneeling by the ground and standing up, then sitting only to repeat this action multiple times. I know this was just in my head, but it was like I could pinpoint where this idea was. So I grabbed my stuff and went in for the night. We all fell asleep. In the middle of the night, I awake to a huge bang on wood that sounded like the north doors being hit. I was very tired and looked around, and neither my girlfriend or my friend on the futon five feet away from me were awake. I shrug it off and fall back asleep. I continued to have dreams as if my vision was just floating inside the yurt, slowly panning along the inner wall, looking outside of the windows for hours. Like I was standing in the yurt, walking around, but I had no body and there was no sound of me walking. Then I awake again to a huge bang at the other door just six feet from the futon. Since my body was oriented towards it, I opened my eyes and I was immediately fixated at the door, which had a full glass window with a shade. I watched intently, looking to see someone, but nothing in my head, I said, nope, this, and shut my eyes and went back to bed. Hours pass and I wake a third time. This time I was on my side and didn't open my eyes. To my horror, I can hear a voice just outside. It was a sort of inflection more than words. It spoke in a way like a person was speaking to another. I had this notion that there were two, of whatever it was, looking in as to say, look, you can see them right there. I was petrified, and I looked real quick to see the clock at 5.30 a.m. I once again said, that, to myself and fell back asleep. When we woke up, I said to my friend, I don't want to alarm you, but I was hearing some up shit last night. Both my friend and girlfriend said that they had also awoke to huge bangs. The weird thing is, when each one of us heard the noise and woke up, we had seen that all the others were asleep. I don't know what this was, but I think I pissed off something by pissing on top of its mountain. And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these True Middle of Nowhere Stories, Volume 3. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.